I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 285. And today in the show, I'm joined by professional big wave surfer Shane Dorian to discuss how discipline, self-awareness, and training for worst-case scenarios has made him one of the best surfers in the world and a better bow hunter. All right, welcome to the Wired Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today we're continuing with our Peak Performers series in which we're interviewing people at the top of their fields, whether that be professional athletes or businessmen or authors, whatever it might be. And we're chatting with these people to learn about what skills and routines and habits and practices have helped them achieve excellence in their professions and then how we can apply those same lessons to our pursuit to become better hunters. So our guest today is a perfect example of this as Shane Dorian has risen to the top of the surfing world over the past two decades. He's had you know, a number of top 10 finishes on the world championship tour. He has won numerous awards, including ride of the year in 2011, 15, and 16. And he was most recently featured in an HBO documentary called The Momentum Generation. And all these accomplishments have taken just a monumental amount of determination and hard work and training, and learning along the way. And those same things have helped him become a better bow hunter too, because he's also now really passionate about hunting. And so that's where the majority of our conversation is spent today. You know, digging into how Shane achieved excellence in his profession as a surfer, and then how all that has translated to him developing his passion as a bow hunter. So we discuss the importance of discipline in his life and how he's fostered that. We talk about training for high-intensity moments like paddling into a big wave or drawing back on a big buck. We talk about the importance of forcing yourself out of your comfort zone. We even get into some quick tips about just healthier living that can help you perform better in the field. And all in all, it was just a fascinating conversation. Shane is a good dude, and I know that there are going to be things that you can take from this that will absolutely help you make positive progress towards your hunting goals this coming season, which I know is top of mind for all of us right now. So with all that said, I want to get right to that conversation. But first, let's take a quick break to thank one of our partners, and then we'll get to chatting with Shane Dorian. All right, I'm now here on the line with Shane Dorian. Thanks for doing this, Shane. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. My uh, my buddy, 
Ben O'Brien, one of my colleagues over here, Meat Eater, has told me a couple times that you're someone I need to talk to. Uh, I know you guys have shared a hunting camp or two together. And as I understand it, right, you're, you're obviously professional big wave surfer. I know you bow hunt. I know you've done a lot in Hawaii. There's all sorts of animals out there. I know you've traveled to the Western United States, to Colorado and places like that, chasing elk and whatnot. Um, but what's really interesting to me is that you just went on your first whitetail hunt this past year. I got to believe that's pretty different than some of the other things you've been doing. So what did you, what did you think about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, first of all, yeah, um, I'm really good friends with Ben O'Brien. He's a he's a legend. I love that guy. Um, and yeah, just it was one of those things where I always wanted to try whitetail hunting, but because I am a surfer, the you know the prime time for surfing is in the winter time. So you know, like November and December is you know is really when like my season gets really serious. So that's why it took me so long to you know to try and get out to the Midwest to hunt whitetails, just because it's a really difficult time of the year for me, but. Last year, um, I got the call from a guy named Sloan Brown, and, um, you know, he just said, you know, we got this whitetail hunt coming up. Do you want to come out and do it? And um, so I jumped into chance. I jumped on a plane and got out there, and, and yeah, that was my first time to the Midwest, first time to Ohio, and first time hunting whitetails. And you were, you were hunting with my buddy Donnie Wilson, right? I saw he, he had some pictures of you out there, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, Donnie, he's, he's the man out there in Ohio. He's, he's killed some big bucks with his bow, and... You know, he knows the animals really good. I, I didn't really have any idea really what I was doing out there. I was just, you know, wanted to learn as much as I could. But, you know, just such a different environment to what I'm used to. Um, I'm not very patient. I'm not a super patient hunter. Um, I really love to spot and stalk. I love to be on the ground with game. And I like to kind of, like, move around a lot. I always feel like whenever I'm sitting in a certain place that there's there's deer everywhere except where I am, you know, right. so, the grass you know, like when you're, when you're, well, it's, it's a little bit hard for me to be confined to a tree stand. So I knew that was like a kind of like a personal challenge. I needed to try and try and, uh, you know, see if I had a, had a, what it took for that. So what was the verdict once you, you did it for a while? Did you, did it, did it come to be something you enjoyed or was it a struggle? Yeah, no, it was awesome. Um, you know, I, I love, I love hunting and I, I, I love, I'm not the type of hunter that has like a big list of different animals I need to kill. I'm not like I need to get my mountain goat and then I need an Ibex and then I need a Owdad and then I need a zebra and then I need a kudu and then I need an elk. I'm not that. I, I just really love to hunt different places with different people. Um, and just to see different terrain and hunting methods and, and meet local hunters who hunt different species. And, and it was fun to hang out with Donnie and, and do the whitetail thing and, and be in like really cold temperatures and sit in a tree stand and try and keep warm and try and not go stir crazy and be patient. And it was really fun, man. It was super challenging. Um, it was, it was, you know, just having like the extra clothing and, you know, trying to keep warm and then trying to get to full draw um, and then trying to sit still. And there was, so there was a lot of challenges, but it was, it was a blast. I, I loved it. The, you know, the White Hill Woods in Ohio were absolutely stunning and beautiful and, um, I was lucky enough to have a doe come in on my second morning there. There was a really big buck that Donnie was after, um, you know, for a few weeks. He had him on game camera, but only at night. And so he really wanted me to try and kill that buck. And that buck just ended up being super nocturnal. And um, so the second morning I was there, I, I only had a few days to hunt. My time was really limited. So on my second morning, Donnie was sitting in the tree next to me. And, and this doe came into a scrape. 
and and a and a buck was following her and I looked at Donnie and he said go for it and so as soon as that buck stopped I was already at full draw and um, let him have it. That's awesome. Now, was it that that feeling like that that peak of of excitement and adrenaline and that moment when the buck shows up and you get that shot? I've always kind of I always tr- struggle to to understand the difference between that moment versus like if you're out on a Western hunt and you're chasing an elk and you're running up and down mountains and then you get the shot because like in that moment when you're hunting elk, it's like this adrenaline rush for an hour or two, right? You're, you're running up a mountain. You, you finally catch up to the elk. It's been like high intensity for a very extended period of time. So there's something about that that's incredible. But then at the same time, it's like the polar opposite when you're whitetail hunting because it's very low intensity for hours and hours and hours. So you're, you're kind of sitting and waiting and observing and watching and thinking, and you're, you're working at this very low wavelength. And all of a sudden then you spike way high when that buck shows up and you go from zero to 60 in two seconds. And so that's a huge rush in a different kind of way. Did, did that feel different to you too? Or what was that like compared to your past hunting experiences? For sure. I mean, it's, um, you know, whenever you're, you know, whenever you're just, um, you know, just kind of hoping that some, some, something's going to show up and it just seems like the time goes so slow. And it seems like in the evening time when it's, when it's going to get dark, that, you know, the dark comes pretty quickly and, and you're really worried that they're, you know, that there's, there's not a deer that's going to show up before dark. And there's just a million things going through your brain. And then all of a sudden the moment's there right in front of you. And, and so, you know, that, that, that particular hunt was, was a situation where I didn't really have time to get nervous. It was like the buck was walking in super fast. He was going to stop or he was going to, I was hoping he was going to stop. I got the full draw and I knew it was only a matter of seconds and I didn't really have time to get nervous. As soon as he stopped, I just settled my pin. I was using a back tension release and I just started squeezing on that. And, and I just started uh, pulling on that. And, you know, he, luckily he stayed still for enough time and um, I let him have it, but, it was, yeah, it's, it's so different because you know, the, the moment, you know, like the moment of truth when you're archery hunting is, is, is pretty similar. I think species to species, it's just the, all the moments leading up to that moment that are different. Like with elk, you know, if you, or, or like with mule deer, if you see a, a deer like feeding in the morning and you wait from the bed and then you wait for the wind to, to stabilize and you plan your stock and then you, you spend two or three hours stalking it and getting into 30 yards. And then you're waiting another four hours for, for the thing to stand up. There's so much time um, and so much mental fatigue trying to stay focused. And if you're on your knees and, and you're and you're trying to, to to like withstand the pain and not move around, you know, there, there's so much time to think about that upcoming moment. But in whitetail hunting, it seems like the upcoming moment just happens. Yeah, can, it can all change in a second. Can come out of nowhere. That's for sure. So yeah, and I think I just got pretty lucky you know a buck came in at the right time um he didn't look up when i got the full draw or when i was getting the full draw um you know the doe didn't spook i just it, things just kind of fell into place and um i ended up making a great shot so i was really happy he actually he 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 didn't even take a step he just dropped in his track so that's awesome um, i was really stoked on that yeah yeah I uh, I just switched to a back tension release myself this year, so I'm still like, kind of getting used to it and training with it. How have you liked that? Oh man, I love it. It's um for for me, it was a necessity. I was I was battling some pretty bad um, heart panic, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners can can relate to. And yeah, I was just having a, a difficult time with with trigger releases. I was starting to get to the point where it was really difficult for me to relax during the shot process on on, on an animal and. 
I was starting to make really inconsistent shots and having the, you know, the point of impact pretty, pretty far away from where I really wanted to. And I would get to the point where I would put my pin on that animal and I couldn't relax. And as soon as my pin got in the kill zone, I would punch a trigger. And, um, I, I was just truly trying to get frustrated. So I ended up, um, talking to John Dudley and getting one of those silverbacks and took the sight off my bow and did blank bail shooting and closed my eyes and shot like that for a month. And then, and then just shot blank bill for a month and then didn't shoot at any like sort of target for another month. And then I put my, my sight back on and just worked my way back into, into like normal, like target archery. And then, and then, yeah, it's been a game changer for me. My, 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 my ratio of animals, um, you know, that I, that I've, that I've killed has gone way up. Um, the, the, the amount of animals that I've lost has gone way down and, and, and the point of impact from where I'm aiming um, has gotten much more accurate. So I'm very, very stoked with the results, and I, I feel like I'm a much better hunter with the backcountry release. That's great. Yeah, that's that sounds really similar to, to my story. I kind of had, was having the same issues and decided to do the same thing you've done, kind of started back from the ground and, and got one of those silverbacks too. So that's that's where I'm at. And it's good to hear you've had, you've had positive results. I'm hoping to have similar stories this fall. So so you you, you have done something which which we've been talking to a whole bunch of different people about which is you've kind of reached the top of your game in your professional life as as a surfer competitive surfer and a big wave surfer you're right there at the the peak of the mountain um and so what we've been trying to do over recent weeks is is talk to different people like this who are i don't know like a really generic way of saying is like a high achiever peak performer something someone who's who's really found a way to achieve excellence in something and then we're like kind of breaking down like what are the different pieces of that puzzle that have made that person as successful as they are and then is there something we can learn about that that we can apply to our passion of hunting um so you've you've obviously found a way to do that in the surfing world. And it sure seems like you're doing that now in the hunting world too. Um, obviously I have a passion for both of those things, but I'm kind of curious at the top, like did you fall for hunting and fall in love with bow hunting because of how similar it is to something about surfing, maybe the work that it takes or the training it takes or, or the intensity of it, or is it because of how different it is from surfing? What's that relationship for you? You know, I, th- I think it's a little bit of both. I think, I've never, I've never fallen in love with any other thing besides surfing in my whole life. And, you know, I started surfing when I was five and I fell head over heels for it and became obsessed with it. And that's all I cared about. It's all I thought about. It got in the way of everything I ever did with girls and, and everything else, you know, that's all I wanted (laughs) to do is go surfing. It's cool. You know, it's all I thought about in school. And, um, and so I, I just became obsessed with it and it's all I did. And that's all I really knew how to do for, for decades and decades. And that's, why I became really good at it. And, and then, um, you know, I, I, yeah, I've reached a high level in surfing and it's become my profession and it's what all I've done for about 30 years. Um, and then I found bow hunting pretty late. And when I was 30 years old, I started bow hunting and, um, it was the same situation for me. I, 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 you know, I didn't really have anything besides surfing that I really loved. And I found bow hunting and I instantly fell for it. Um, I just loved it. It was so similar to surfing in a lot of ways. Like, um, you know, the, the, the real reasons I fell in love with surfing was because it was an escape. It was an escape from school. It was an escape from, you know, the, the classroom in school and my teachers and everyone who would tell me what to do. It was an escape from my parents and the, the situation at home I was in and the, the issues and all the stress in my life. And 
all this stuff as a child, which w- weren't even that stressful, but I thought they were, you know, when you're a kid, you think everything's radical. Yeah. But you know, the, the, the ocean was my escape. The ocean was like my, the thing that, um, just set me straight and, and kept my head on straight. And, and then with surfing it's the same way, you know, and, you know, now as an adult, now as an adult, it's like, you know, our day to day lives can be pretty stressful. And, and to have just even not even hunting, just archery, just, just at the end of the day to just grab your bow and go out in the yard with a deer and shoot some arrows at the target. It's just, it's so therapeutic and it's so good, good for us, I think. And, and for, for me to find that uh, at later in life and to really fall in love with it and become super passionate about archery and archery hunting has just been such a blessing in my life. I really love it. And I've met friends that I never would have met in a million years had I not started archery hunting and, and, a lot of the most beautiful places I've ever been to in the world now is, is only because I started hunting. So it's just really neat to, to find something totally different and become passionate about it. And, and, um, it, there's a lot of similarities between, um, archery hunting and surfing. And there's, there's a lot of differences as well. They're, they're so different in a lot of ways and very similar in some ways. Do you think that anything from your surfing background has helped you become, you know, a competent bow hunter? Is there anything that jumps out right away as like, you know, that kind of helped instill this thing in me that now you use as a hunter or anything like that? For sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, being, being a professional big wave surfer, you, you you know, it, it, it took me multiple decades to, to, you know, get the skill to, to be a really high level at that. And, and um, that's the the things you really need for for big wave surfing is is discipline, and um, you know determination, str- you know really strong mental focus, being able to perform in key moments that you can't predict. Um, you know, with with surfing, you're 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 dealing with mother nature. You're not it's not a basketball hoop and a basketball, and you throw the basketball and it goes in the hoop and you get your points. It's not like that. It's not like a basketball hoop that never moves and you know where it is all the time like a skateboard ramp it doesn't move and you know where it is all the time with surfing it's like you know for if you're a, a, a big wave surfer there might be only one truly epic swell per year and you have no idea when that swell is going to hit whether it's in december whether it's on a certain day so you have to train all year long you have to be mentally and physically ready all year long year in year out um you know because those key moments those key swells are you know the things that define you as a surfer and they that's that's what that's what um you know, that's when it really truly counts. And it's very similar in bow hunting. It's like, you know, you can, you can shoot a million arrows a year and just drill the heart on every single foam deer target in the world. But if you can't recreate that in the moment on a real life animal, then it doesn't matter. Um, so I think that mental focus and knowing how to, how to step up when, when, you know, in, in, in the moment of truth, I think I, that's definitely, I've, I've been able to bring that over from surfing. I'm not saying I'm, a deadly bow hunter or anything like that, but it's it's definitely helped me a lot. So how did you develop that ability? Maybe in surfing, right? How did you get to the point where you can get that one chance a year maybe, and you just, you you crush it. What have you been doing to get to that point? I just think a lot of experience, you know, just getting a a lot of experience in the ocean for sure. A lot lot of big swells under my belt and a, a lot of slow progress with baby steps, just, you know, year after year, um, decade after decade. And, but I think we all do that in our lives in some certain capacity that we can kind of draw, uh, you know, when we're archery hunting, it's interesting with, with, um, with, with archery hunting, it's like, 
um, I'm pretty lucky, you know, where, where, where I live, I can get a lot of experience. You know, if you're, if you live in Ohio or something like that, it's archery season, you know, when, when, when it's over, you, you know, you put your bow away for a while and then you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm six months out from archery season. I'm going to get my bow back up and maybe get some new gear, maybe buy a, buy a new site for the next white tail season. And then you're like, I'm four months out. Okay. Now I'm starting to shoot a lot. Yeah. Now I'm two months out. Okay. Now I'm shooting a ton. And then I'm one month out and I'm switching to broadhead. And then it's like this big anticipation for this, this one deer you're going to kill or maybe not kill. For me right now, I could hang up the phone, grab my bow, jump in my truck and drive three minutes and go hunting. Because you have no and season there, right? I could go, there's no season and yeah. there's no bag limit. I could go outside my house, literally just walk outside my house and start hunting right now. Wow. And, um, and you know, there's wild boars all around my house and goats like a 15 minute walk from my house and, I can hunt rams at the top of this mountain right here where I live. And um, you can do that every single day of the year and there's no bag limits, no seasons. And so for me, I'm pretty lucky as far as experience goes. I was, I was a really, I found hunting really late, but I feel like I've put in enough days in the last, you know, 12 to 15 years. That is like a lifetime of hunting. You know, I've I've hunted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of days um, with, with a lot of days coming home with like no arrows left <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that kind of makes me think about uh, this this kind of thing that's happening i think to a lot of people these days that are maybe just getting into hunting now they see you know all these tv shows and all these magazines and instagram and they're seeing big deer or big elk or big whatever all the time so there's this kind of expectation that's developed just by everything you see in the media that makes you think oh i gotta hold out for a big something, whatever it is. So then you get these new hunters who then go the first year, two, three, four, five years, and they just, they don't want to shoot anything because they want it to be this great big buck. Cause that's what it seems like they think they have to do if they want to get a lot of likes on Instagram or just so their buddies don't give them a hard time. So you get people that don't end up getting a lot of experience with that final moment of truth because they're just waiting and passing and passing and passing and doing kind of the opposite of what, what you talked about doing, which is, you know, surfing like crazy all the time and getting that experience or hunting as often as you can and, and actually going through that whole thing. Do you think like that scenario just laid out, is that an issue in your mind? Like, is that holding people back? Do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, there, you know, there's nothing wrong with big deer or big elk. I mean, I mean, I like those things just as much as the next person, but I, it's, it's on a, on a, it's, it's meaningless. It's just, that's, that's, that's not really why you hunt. We hunt for, I mean, I, I hunt for experiences. Like when, like when Ben came out and visited me here in Hawaii, I had hunted with Ben a couple of times and, and spent a lot of time with him on the mainland and stuff. And then when he finally came out and visited me in Hawaii, um, you know, we spent a week chasing deer on Lanai. And, dude, we just did a million stalks, shot a million arrows, drank beers at night, talked a lot of shit, had <laughs> fun, had a great, great group of guys and, that's what it was all about. We didn't remember the big deer. I didn't remember any big bucks. I, that, that's not what, what I remember. I remember yeah. all the blown stalks and all the misses and all the times I screwed up and those little moments when I made the shot count. And that's the, those experiences, dude. If you're hanging, if you're waiting for the biggest elk on the mountain, or if you're waiting five years for one big whitetail, yeah, it's going to look good on your wall when you kill him. But you're wasting your time, man. It's it's all about like the relationships and. And the, and the hunters we, we make friends with and share camp with and all those moments with the animals, man. Like, I just want to get out there and hunt as much as I can with great people and have amazing experiences, honestly. 
Yeah, that that it's easy to get caught up in all the other stuff and forget the about the those foundational aspects of it that really are like you said, those are the memory makers ninety nine percent of the time. Um but then there is something to be said that that those final moments, whether you can close the deal or not, that often is what defines you as a hunter in, in some certain ways, right? Um, at least to yourself, knowing what you're able to do, what you've been able to accomplish, I suppose. Um, do you think that there's anything, I, I got to imagine, um, that when you paddle into a big wave, it's like a very high pressure, high intensity situation, um, dangerous situation probably too. And right as hunters, we enter this high pressure situation when we're about to draw back on a, on a deer an elk or something very different, but similarly high pressure. Like we were talking about everything all year leads up to this one moment. Um, I heard you once talk about the fact that in that moment for you, you're not thinking about anything at all. Like there's no self-talk, there's no conscious thing. It's just like instinct taking over. Um, is that the same for you when you're in the moment of truth for a deer or, or an elk or whatever, when you're drawing back? Like, do you have that same, you know, just instinctual action? Um, and part two of that would be how do you get to the point where instinct is able to help you, you know, handle those situations? Is it just the experience thing or is there any other like actual training or work or something that helps you just not choke? I think it's just experience. With in surfing, like if you if you put me out in the ocean right now and it was the biggest swell of the year, and I had to paddle it into the line if it gets a really big wave, I wouldn't be thinking about really anything. When that wave approached, I had to turn around and paddle. I wouldn't be thinking about anything. I just would be focused, and it would all. I would just like rely on my instincts and my history and my experience. But when I'm bow hunting, and that situation presents itself, and it's that that moment of truth, it's the opposite. I'm, I definitely don't go blank. If I go blank, I miss. And so for me, it's a matter of like really focusing on every single part of the process, each step as far as like, you know, when to get up on my knees, when to draw, what's the animal doing? Is there a lot of does looking? Okay. They're all not looking at me. Now's the time. Okay. Now's the time to draw. Okay. I got the full draw. Now's my, you know, my anchor, then my bubble, then my pin, you know, which pin is it? Okay. Get on the animal. Don't pull the trigger, relax, breathe, start focusing on that pin and then pull through the shot. And I have to go through all those things or else I can't make a great shot. Um, and I know that about myself. And so I just rely on my shot process and, and I try to really focus on that. And breaking it down into pieces is the thing that helps me make the shot in the moment of truth. And I think the difference between surfing for me and relying on my instincts and not really thinking about much and in bow hunting, having a full on focus on, on, the, on the process is it's just a matter of, you know, I didn't grow up bow hunting. Um, I don't have decades of experience. And so for me, I just really want to, um, I think, uh, I, I think a guy like John Dudley, um, or someone like that, and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there like that have been bow hunting since they were little kids. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they probably don't need to think of anything when they are, you know, uh, you know, about to make the shot. But I think archery hunting is, is a little bit different. It's so technical one little tiny thing can go wrong. One, one, one little element of your, of your process is not there, whether it's your level or falling through or pulling through the shot or, um, you know, obviously focusing on the right pin, all those things need to be perfect. Um, so I would think a lot more people would even like really experienced bow hunters would probably have to break it down into a real process. Yeah. And, and I know just from my own personal experience, having to do that very same thing you just talked about, like that, 
takes a lot of, um, I mean, all the things we talked about, it takes a lot of work. Like you have to drill all those things to really develop that process and that habit and, and knowing how to do all those things in that high pressure situation takes a whole lot of work over the preceding weeks and months and years. Um, how do you fit that kind of preparation into your life? Because I feel like a lot of us know, all right, we should be practicing with our bows a lot. A lot of us know we should be out there, you know, exercising or whatever to stay in good shape for our hunts. A lot of us know we should be doing A, B, or C to prepare, but it's real easy for life to get in the way, for taking the kids to school to make things tough, or you got to do stuff around the house, or your wife needs help doing A, B, C, D, and D, and all of a sudden your whole day is gone and you you don't have any time. How do you make time for those things or how do you fit that kind of thing into your life and, and make it a habit? It's either important or it's not, you know, it's like we, we, it's easy to say, you know, I don't have time for my archery today, but it's super important to me. Bullshit. You know, it's, it's, you have time. You just have to make it. You have to make time. Look, you know, look at, look at Cameron Haynes. That guy's busier than anybody. Yep. He's still shooting, you know, even if it's only five arrows a day. He's still shooting it when he's in his work clothes about to walk out his door. It's just like most people say it's important, but it's really not. But to Cameron Haynes and a million other people out there, they do. Like they get home in the dark and then they turn on their, their headlights on their, on their target at 15 yards and just make those, make those 10 arrows count. You know, it's like if, if it's really, really important to you, truly important to you, then, you know, you got to act like it. You can't just say it's important, you know. Yeah. If you say it, it doesn't really mean much is my point, I guess. And um, I'm the same. I'm, I'm guilty of it just like everyone else. My my life is really busy. I'm traveling a lot. A lot of times I'm gone for a month at a time or three weeks at a time. or um, And then I get home and there's only like two days before I'm going hunting. And I got to scramble and get my bow dialed and make sure everything, you know, my arrows are set, all my gear is ready. And I just have to, you know, get out there and shoot a bunch of arrows. I only have, you know, a day and a half before I got to leave. And, and um you know, in, in those moments, I just have to make it count. And then when I'm at home for a long time, I just have to force myself to, to, to shoot. You know, I, I try to shoot like 20 arrows a day, like three or four days a week when I'm home. So even though it's not hundreds of arrows, you just want to make every single arrow count. Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes down to, and you, you brought this up earlier, discipline, right? Just having the discipline to, to, you prioritize this thing and now you have to do it. You have to follow through on that goal. And I I heard you say once that there's a whole lot of things that you're not, but one thing that you are is disciplined. And I think you said 90% of your success, you would probably attribute to discipline. Um, So what, what is discipline? Like what to you, how does that like manifest in your life? Like, how are you disciplined and how do you, how have you gotten that way? Um, well, the, I think I got it from my mom. My mom's extremely disciplined. She doesn't, doesn't make any excuses. She doesn't blame anything else, anything on anybody else. Um, she, she takes full responsibility for things that are happening in her life. And, and I just kind of grew up watching that and having other examples that were the opposite. And I just grew to really respect her. And, um, you know, she's the type of person that if she tells you she's going to be somewhere to meet you at, at eight o'clock, she's there at seven fifty-eight. Um, she's never late, you know, and, and she just in her life, that's just how she's always been. And I just kind of learned that from her and I really looked up to her and really had a lot of respect for her because of that. And I guess that's where I got really disciplined. And, and I realized that, you know, you, you know, what you put into something is what you get out. And, um, that's kind of definitely what's, what's happened with my surfing, just putting in tons and tons of time, uh, ocean time has really paid off for me. So 
I try to, I try to, you know, bring that into other parts of my life and with archery and, and bow hunting, I try to like spend a lot of time as much as I can hunting with the best people that I possibly can and seeing you just, just, just being disciplined in putting in the effort and trying to learn. Like I don't just go out there and aimlessly shoot for three hours, shoot my bow. I go out there and I might shoot for 20 minutes, but I shoot one arrow, you know, at 50 yards. And then I go and grab my arrow, walk back to 50 and shoot again. And then I go and grab my arrow and walk back to 50. Just that, that way you just focus on one arrow at a time and try and make it a perfect arrow. And, you know, and then when I go hunting, I can either hunt by myself and I try and hunt animals that are really, really hard to hunt. Um, and even if I'm not taking the shots when I get them, I just, you know, I might stalk into 30 yards, um, you know, wait for the right time to draw, draw my bow, aim, focus on that spot. Um, and then just sit there and aim right in the kill spot and then let down and then let the animals walk away and restock them again or stalk another group. And, and I feel like that sort of practice and, and really preparing for the right moment of truth is super important. Yes. Yeah, that like, that concept that's kind of talked about a lot, like deliberate practice, like having a real purpose to your practice and, and not just that you said flinging arrows around seems to be the way to, to really make a difference. Um, so, so this, you kind of were lucky in, a, in some way, I guess, that you had a great role model with your mom being so disciplined. But what if there's like someone out there who, for whatever reason, maybe just how they were raised or their circumstances, they just didn't have a great uh, background with becoming a disciplined person. But they like hear about people talking about these things and they know they want to achieve more. They want to become a better hunter or whatever might be in their life. And they're just kind of struggling to follow through on things. They know they should be doing A or B, but the alarm goes off in the morning and they just can't get out of bed. I mean, like, is that, is someone just kind of SOL if that's the kind of person they are? Or do you think that you can change that? Like, can you become more disciplined? And if so, like, how does someone do that? Uh, read David Goggins book. Mm. Um, have you read that? I've not read it. I've listened to a couple podcasts though with him. So I, I'm familiar with the story and stuff. I mean, yeah, like I, you know, for, for your listeners out there, if you don't like to read, go, go and go and listen to, um, David Goggins podcast with Joe Rogan. And, you know, he was fat and lazy and obese and he failed, um, in a lot of different ways, trying to get into special forces in the military. And, you know, he had all these really, really bad personal traits and tons of weaknesses. And he ended up just absolutely hating himself. Um, then he thought he could never change. You know, he was a failure for the first half of his life. And his story is super inspiring because he just basically went, you know what? I hate myself. I hate how I am. I'm going to change. And he basically just pulverized himself and made it super hard in his life and turned everything around and and now he's really inspirational. He's ultra fit. He's like, I think he was a Navy SEAL for a very long time. And um, but he's a great guy to listen to and and to read his book is is a total life changer. But I think you know life is short, man. Like you're gonna blink and you're gonna be 60 or 70 or 80 years old, and you're gonna look back and just just think you blew it. You you we got one shot. There's no reason to laying around in bed, eating bonbons. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. if you want to go bow hunting, go bow hunting. I have really, really good friends on it. They're sending me, like, bow hunting Instagram links all the time and, and, like, pictures of big bucks and always talking about hunting. But these guys don't hunt. They don't go hunting. They, they hunt, like, in their backyard every now and then. 
but they they talk about hunting all the time. I'm like, you guys are just wasting your time. If you're, you're you're over here sending pictures on my phone, meanwhile you haven't hunted in four months, five months, and you can go hunting every day of the year. Like, like get out there and go do what you really want to do. If if it's surfing, whether it's bow hunting, whether it's trying to get a promotion at your job, whatever. Like, make it count, you know. And I and I and I, I love like listening to guys like um, Joe Rogan's like that. Cameron Haynes is like that. David Goggins is like that. Um, Oprah Winfrey's like that. I love listening to these people. Like they really don't have any excuses and man, they really like every minute counts of our lives. And, and, and unless you really believe that and really like live like that, you're just wasting it. You know? Yeah. I, I, I feel like we're so lucky to, to, to be living the lives we, we are. And, and most of us live in a place where we have freedoms that are like an, an incredible, um, you know, we're just super lucky. Yeah. And I, I feel like we need to live like we're lucky. That's a good point. I people, I, I, I talk to my kids all the time, you know, I'm like, they, you know, they get lazy and spoiled a lot. And I'm like, you know, like, look, you, you got, you got two arms, two legs. You're healthy. You can go run as fast as you want right now. You can go swimming as fast as you want. You can like go play and have fun. Like think of all the kids that they live in Afghanistan right now. They, they don't have the choices you have. You don't, they don't have the, options you have. Think all the kids that are born in a wheelchair or they get cancer when they're five years old and they die. Like shit happens. Life's gnarly. So, and it's quick. So it's like, I just feel like, you know, just got to make the most of it is, is really the point. That's everyone's always wondering what the point of life is, but that's really the point. Make it count. Yeah, that is, that is so true. And, and like you said, it's, you got to live like you're lucky. And then you also need to realize that in an instant, right? Everything could change. You, you know, it could be a car accident or there could be all these things. So, so like appreciate every yeah. minute too. Like don't, don't push things off for tomorrow or for next year or for someday because someday might not come. So like you said, you gotta, gotta make it count and you gotta give it your all. Right. I'd hate to, I feel like one of the things people talk about the most like that lying on your deathbed kind of situation is you don't want to have regrets. You don't want to lie there when you're 75 or 90 or however old it is and, and lay there and say, what if I wish I would have tried that? Or I wish I would have really gave this thing my all. I feel like that would be one of the worst things to be doing there at the end of your life. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to live in a way that puts me in that situation. I bet you 90, like 90% of people on their deathbed are, are doing exactly what you're talking about. They're all regretting it. Yeah. They're all, they have all these regrets and all looking back and going, I wish I did this. I wish I did that. But for most of your listeners, they have plenty of time to, to you know, to, to make those changes now and to live their lives now. It's like, you know, yeah. so, you know, that's, that's, that's what I feel like anyway. Yeah, I think that is, those are some wise words. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more 
at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go. But here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. So, so tell me this. I feel like one of the, like a lot of people who listen to this podcast are, are like really, really driven to take their hunting to the next level. A lot of people are, are trying to find ways to, to learn more, to get better, to become more successful. Um, and so, and so that's kind of why we're talking about this kind of stuff, right? Ways to improve yourself, to improve your success in the field and whatnot. Um, and, and a concept that's sometimes talked about is like this idea, like going pro, like when you do something and I don't mean literally going pro, but like when you just do something as a hobby, you're just out there kind of having a good time with it. You're not going to do a lot of the things we've talked about having this kind of discipline around it. But if you, if you decide you have some goals with that hobby that you want to achieve, then you, it almost helps to take that switch and flip it and say, all right, you know, I'm going to go pro kind of metaphorically and do these different things. So I, I kind of want to dig into the situation for you when you turned pro because, right, you, you surfed your whole life as a kid until you got done with high school when you graduate. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but as I understand it. When you graduated high school, you decided, you know what, I'm going to give this a shot. I'm going to try to go pro. And you went out for the tour. Um, what was that shift like for you to go from just like an avid having fun as a, as a surfer to then I'm going to go pro? Like what had to be different for you? Simply getting out of my comfort zone. That was everything. You know, I, I grew up in a little town um, on a pretty quiet island with no pro surfers on it. And, um, you know, the amateur surfing here where I live was, um, you know, I was I was a good surfer and there was hardly any kids who surfed even decent. And so... I would win every contest. And so I was, I was like a big fish in a little pond and, and it was very comfortable, you know, it was super comfortable, but, um, you know, and it feels good, right. To win contests. And, and then I would go to other islands where all the good surfers were and I get my ass kicked and, and, you know, and, you know, that was really uncomfortable. And it's just a, it's just a, I, I, I feel like, you know, when I, when I got older and I really, made that choice to, to be super determined that they're to really give it a real shot. It's just a matter of like embracing being uncomfortable. You know, you're going to, you're going to lose a whole lot more than you're going to win. And if you can't handle that and you're not cut out for it. And for me, it was a matter of like, just getting used to that, like getting used to being uncomfortable, just like David Goggins said, it's like, yeah. you know, you're never going to do anything good. If you're comfortable, if you're in your comfort zone, you're not growing, you're not learning, you're not getting better. So for bow hunters, if you want to get better, if you truly, truly want to get better, get out of your comfort zone. If you're a whitetail hunter and you live in Ohio, don't just wait for that one whitetail hunt in Ohio every year like you always been doing. Go to a different state, hunt a different species. 
Um, you know, hunt more. Go stalk them during the off season with that without a boat. Like, do something. Don't like if you really truly want to get better and get better. There's nothing stopping anybody. Get you know, get a group of friends together. Go to Hawaii and hunt goats for three or four days, and it's unlimited. And you can hunt them all day, every day, and or sheep or deer or anything in Hawaii. Or you can go to you can get a group of guys to to go to a different state where there's tons of tons of deer and there's you know you can shoot a bunch of them. I don't know. There's, there's just a million things you can do to get better, but I think where it really, really starts where the rubber hits the road is when you're out of your comfort zone. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like so true. Like you said, just the simple act of just going to new places is at least in the hunting world can change things up in a, in big ways that just force you to learn new things that can then help you back in the original place. Like if you want to hunt your family farm all the time, that's great. But going and trying these new things will definitely help you develop skills that you can take back there. Um, I've been a huge advocate too for that, that idea. Um, so you, you had to get outside your comfort zone. You started, you know, sir, you, you made the tour. You were able to surf professionally now competitively. Now it's like, I got to, at least I'm imagining now that you're doing this, you're traveling across the world surfing, I gotta imagine it became a grind at some point. Like it, it was probably really exciting and sexy at first, and then it became, oh wow, this is a lot of work. There's a lot of stuff I have to do to stay up on this, to to be able to be competitive, to get better, and you're doing over and over and over and over again. Did you have any kind of routines you had to build into your life, or any kind of training regimen, or, or anything that just helped you a stay sane throughout that grind, but b actually like get get through it and be successful? Anything like that that you kind of built into what your daily life to, to make that all work? Yeah. Um, I think the, I think the number one thing is like work ethic was that that was the big thing that changed it for me is, is really um, instilling structure in my life. I went from just being a kid and then, and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, I was, I was, you know, being a kid living at home with my parents to rarely ever seeing my parents within a whole year and being on the road by myself with my friends. And like all of a sudden you have a credit card and money in your pocket and you're in France or Japan or Indonesia or California or wherever. And like, no one's telling you to not party at night. Like no one's telling you to not go out with the crazy girls you met that day all <laughs> night long. And uh-huh. like, nobody's telling you to, to like go to sleep at night at a certain time. And you know, like no one's telling you to, to not do your stretches and to, and to eat really healthy and all that stuff. You know, I never had like a, manager or an agent or supervisor or anybody that was traveling with me. It was just, we were on the road like kids. And so for me, it was like surfing was truly important. So instead of partying all night and raging with chicks and staying up all night and sleeping in and, and, you know, eating crappy food and just, just, you know, like living that kind of lifestyle and, and, and hoping for the best, I had to like start eating really good food, started physical training started doing yoga, started doing breathing, started reading books, started really trying to like get better, like find any edge that I could and try to make myself better, kind of sharpen the knife, so to speak. And, um, and then, and then find a balance of like, um, you know, when I was in different places, I would, I would have a balance of like staying super physically and mentally fit, training all the time, putting a ton to work surfing. Um, and then also like having the balance of like, going, seeing the places, meeting people, experiencing cultures and food and the way of life and all these different places I was visiting. So that was the part that was keeping me sane. And the other part was making me better. Yeah. What was the most 
or maybe a couple things, but what of these changes, these like structures you put in your life, this different training, whether it be mental or physical fitness or any of those things you listed there, what do you think was like the most impactful thing? That you, what was that change that helped you the most? Was there anything that stands out? Um, you know, the, the, nothing stands out from sort of back then. I just became, I just grew up really. I went from being a kid to being an adult and seeing others around me that became successful and trying to instill some of those things in my life, like even, you know, from, from my mom getting the discipline and then getting structure from some of my other friends who were competing at a really high level and seeing like the way they would analyze their performances and all that stuff. Right? So I started incorporating that into my life. And then as I got older, um, like I, I talked to, um, I, I talked to Joe Rogan about this cause he's a, he lives a very efficient lifestyle. Like he's extremely productive and he does a lot in the same amount of time that, you know, everybody has the same 24 hours, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, and it's, and it's what we choose to do with it. That really makes a difference. And like some, someone like Joe Rogan, he's got a lot more stuff going on than the average person. He's got, you know, full on family and he's a great family man, a great dad, good husband and spends tons of time with his family. And then he also, he's a full-time stand-up comedian. He's got his own shows. He's got, you know, he's got so much stuff going on with his, with his on comedy tours. He, you know, he records six podcasts a week, you know, he's just like an extremely productive person. And, and I talked to him about this and, and he said that time blocking is the thing that made the huge difference for him. So he looks at his day and goes, okay, how much sleep do I need? Do I need 10 hours? Do I need six hours? Do I need four hours? Whatever it is. And everybody's a little different, right? We all, we all work differently on different, different sleep times. So for me, it's about seven to eight hours. So I need seven to eight hours. So I try to block that time out, obviously for sleep. And then how many hours a day do I need to spend with my kids for me to feel like I'm a great dad? And then I block out that time. And like, when are those times? It's like before school and after school. And so that gives me this other time in between. And so I block times out. Like I block time out for work on my computer. I block time out for time to stretch and do my exercises. I block time out for my kids. I block time out for my wife, block time out for my sleeping, block time out for my training. And, and, then, and then that really helps you structure your day. Instead of just going, you know what? I really need to shoot my boat sometime today. Instead of like waiting and wondering when you're going to shoot your bow, be like, hey, after work, five o'clock, as soon as I get back to the house, that's when I'm shooting my bow. I'm going to get out of my truck, grab my bow and shoot 10 arrows or 50 arrows, whatever you have time for. But block out that time and plan for it. Don't, don't like hope you're going to get to it. Actually plan for it. You know, and that's, I think that's the difference. Yeah. I, I've heard a lot along those same lines, just the importance of if you get it on your schedule in some kind of way, if you actually plan for it, schedule it in there, there's a much greater chance yeah. you're actually going to do it versus just kind of having this idea. Oh yeah. I'd like to do that today. Cause you know, like yeah. we talked about earlier, all these other things come up and all of a sudden it's 11 o'clock at night and you didn't do three of the things that you kind of thought you might do. So that's a, that's a really good point. Um, so what about this physical fitness side of things? Because that's something I think is becoming more and more relevant to hunters, especially if you hunt, you know, Western big game, it's, it's very relevant, but even whitetail guys, more and more people now are getting really into hiking way back into public land and they'll, they'll carry their tree stand and climbing sticks on their back and they'll hike in as far as they can go and come in and out and, and try and get way back there where it's hard to get, or hard to get to, so you can find these older deer. Um, so there, there's a need more and more to try to be as, as physically fit as you can be, at least to, to make sure that that's not a variable that holds you back. Um, I know you talked about, you started really ramping up your training in those early years professionally, but I also heard that when you retired from the competitive 
surfing and switched to just the big wave surfing, still professionally, but you weren't on the on the tour. When you did that, I heard that you took your training to a different level. Um, is that right? And then what did that mean for you? Like, how did you take that train to the next level? Um, yeah, that's that's correct. When when I was competing full time, I was doing more mostly like a maintenance program of like just trying to stay physically fit while I was on the road. And I was on the road a ton. Like I was on the road like 10 months a year. And so for me, it was like hotel room training and stay, you know, staying with a group of guys in a, in a, in a house in France and like everybody's eating baguettes and wine and cheese and trying to, you know, find something healthy to eat and, and you know, going for a mile run and doing sit-ups and push-ups and pull-ups in my room. And, and so that was like a maintenance program that I was doing. And then once I stopped competing full time, I had more time at home. And so I could, really scale up my physical fitness program. And, um, I started doing CrossFit. I started doing some really intense circuit training, started like entering like little competitions, like little triathlons and stuff like that around where I lived just to, to help me get more fit. Um, but for me, it was like, I really focused on big wave surfing, like really, really big wave surfing. So it's like, you know, my training became like survival training. Um, you know, in order for me, I think that like for, for, for surfing really big waves, the most important component is your mindset and, and, and the mental aspect of it. And if you, if you believe that you've put in the work that makes you really, really strong mentally. Um, and so that's what I tried to do. I did, I did a ton of physical fitness. I got, I went crazy on, on, on working out and getting fit because I felt like in those moments, I felt like I had done the work and, and then I really deserved be out there and I was, I was totally prepared. That's what, that's what gave me the confidence in those moments is all that work I put in. So, you know, if you, if, if, if killing a big buck this year or a big bull is your goal and you sit around and you work, you work all day and you get home and you drink 20 beers and you eat nothing but crap. And then LT, you know, comes around and that bull comes into range. I feel like mentally you don't feel like you deserve that bull hmm. and you'll miss. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I feel like I'm, our minds are so strong that you don't deserve that bowl if you don't put in any kind of work. And then you'll, your mind's so strong that your, your mind will tell you to miss. But if you shoot a million arrows, if you try to watch feed, if you go to the gym and do the Stairmaster because you're going to go hunt the West, if you don't drink 20 beers a night, you know, if you, if you put in some effort, put in some work, and you're disciplined, then you feel prepared. You feel like you put in the work. And then you feel like when that bull comes in, you feel like you deserve that bull. And then that's really, really, it makes a huge difference in your mind. Your mind feels like you deserve that bull. You put in the work. You should kill that bull. And when you have that mental, you know, when you're looking at that bull from that perspective of, of you knowing that you earned that bull, you're going to kill that bull, you know? Yeah, there is so much to the mental side of things. And that's one of those, those I always think about mental toughness and mental preparedness. Like, how do you, how do you, build that muscle. And I think you're probably right. It's, it's just having done so much work and putting in so much time to just, when, when you get to those moments, you don't need to think about, can I do this? Or will I be able to do this or, or whatever? It's, it's, it's just, it becomes instinct. It becomes part of you because you've, you've grinded for so long to get to that point. Um, on the, on, you mentioned some stuff as far as, you know, don't drink 20 beers a night and try to eat decent. <laughs> um, those are good high level ideas. Do you have any other basic, um, yeah, just healthy lifestyle things that have worked well for you? Maybe just some things on the eating side or, or some 
basic things from the fitness that have helped, you know, that have been workable to, to fit into your life, but have helped you, whether it be surfing or mountain hunting or anything like that? Anything that jumps out? Yeah, I mean, just in my daily life, I try and eat one meal out of a blender every day. Um, and I just super simple things like starting in the morning, I drink a whole, a really big glass of water before putting anything in my body. Like, like before putting coffee in my stomach, I drink a big, good giant glass of water. Um, and then I try to eat a healthy breakfast and then, um, I snack between lunch and breakfast. I, I snack between breakfast and lunch. I try to have, have a healthy snack, like a small smoothie or some fruit or something like that for like a bar. If I'm on the, if I'm on the go. And then I have to, I'll try and have a healthy lunch, like say like salmon and rice or salmon and veggies or, or like venison and veggies or something like that. And then I have a snack in between lunch and dinner. And then I have a, and then my, the smallest meal of the day for me is dinner always. Wow. So like I, I, I try to think of food as fuel only. So like after dinner, I'm probably going to go to sleep. So I don't really need a bunch of calories to go to sleep. Right. Yeah. Like that's the last thing you need. So for me, I eat a pretty good sized breakfast because that's the start of the day. I'm going to be like using those calories all day. And then same thing for lunch. I got a busy afternoon. I'll probably eat pretty good sized lunch and then I'll have a snack to keep me going. And then dinner is my smallest meal by far. So, and, um, I, 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 I try not to eat lots of rice or lots of potatoes or, or French fries or bread or anything like that. Like for dinner, I'll try and eat, um, you know, mostly like a, a, a typical, Dinner for me is like salmon and veggies or deer steaks and veggies or deer tacos or something like that. Like, yeah. But really small, you know, just a small meal. And then um, I go to sleep and I drink lots of water and try and get a lot of sleep. Do you think that the, the, the snacking you do in between your meals, is that helping just control your appetite? So when it does come to be dinner or lunch, yeah. you're not picking out, right? Yeah, yes, for sure. Yeah, that's, that's something I'm trying to and get better I, at. Yeah, and then I also drink a lot of water because, you know, if I get really, really hungry, I I stop thinking about eating food as fuel. I start thinking about comfort food. I start thinking about burgers and fries. Mm-hmm. Um, if I get really, really hungry, then I, everything goes out the window. So I try and drink a lot of water, which keeps my stomach full, and then I eat snacks. I, I eat healthy snacks, like bananas or apples or bars or something like that in between. So I'm not starving when lunch comes around. And then I have, I have a plan like, Hey, for lunch, this is what I need today. And I'm not like, Oh, what should we eat? Okay. We'll go to Chipotle and have just a <laughs> giant, giant burrito, Yeah. you know, massive burrito with, you know, or French fries and a burger. Cause when I get hungry, I want French fries and a burger every time. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I try to, I try to stop myself from getting like crazy hungry and I do that by eating healthy snacks. Yeah. It kind of comes back to that kind of scheduling idea. Like how do you get, do all the things you want to do in your day? You schedule it. Well, how yeah. do you make sure you eat in a decent way? Well, you can try to plan ahead versus like those impulse decisions yeah. when your, your impulse decision-making is not nearly as good as your forward thinking. Yeah. It's not as, it's not as um, adventurous and, and fun, but it's definitely, it's really, really good for your health. Yeah. Yeah, that's something that that definitely I know. Uh, I'm I'm trying to find ways to just yeah, you know, as as most of my goals and and the things I'm trying to accomplish are, you know, outdoor pursuit related, hunting or backcountry backpacking or whatever it might be. You know, trying to find ways to just live a healthier lifestyle. That that seems to be just that area where there's there's room for improvement for a lot of us here in America, no doubt. And it, it probably just takes a little bit of that discipline, like we just keep on talking about over and over again. Um, 
on the fitness side, any anything, you know, any basic high level ideas there, a couple of things that people could try implementing to try to get ready for that that first elk hunt or whatever it might be? Well, just in general, I mean, just doing something for 30 minutes. And I, I, I feel like, I, I feel like for most people they can, they can, um, like, the, like they'll, some people like to swim in a pool and some people hate the water, you know, it's totally different for each person. So find something that you actually can stomach and like to do and do that, but do it for a certain amount of time and do it for a certain amount of days every week. So if that's walking on a treadmill, um, if it's that simple, then just go to the gym four days a week and do it for 30 minutes a day, whatever it is. Um, but like specifically for, um, like for elk or hunting the West, definitely like Stairmaster or go on the treadmill and put it as vertical as you possibly can. Um, and even better than that is like, you know, if you have time and there's a hill around or stairs or something like that, put a really heavy backpack on kind of walk up and down the stairs or walk up and down the mountain or the hills, you know? So that's definitely probably the best thing you can do. And, and then like high elevation, like where I live, there's, you know, I, I live at 4,000 feet and then just up the street from my house, the mountain goes to 8,000 feet. So I can do a lot of, a lot of my hunting. Uh, I hunt sheep a lot at like 7,000 feet, 8,000 feet. And so I do a lot of like higher elevation hunts anyway. So, um, but I just love, I love, I love like alpine hunts. I love, um, you know, that sort of like adventure backpack, do it yourself, kind of like wilderness kind of hunting. I love, yeah. I love that a lot. So, um, yeah, so I went, you know, whenever I have a hunt like that coming up, I definitely try to put, put the time in. So, you know, I can't, I can't blame my physical fitness for like not killing a bull. Yeah. Speaking of this kind of training stuff and not necessarily just physical fitness, but this kind of reminded me of something I heard you talk about once where you were talking about the importance to train for these worst case scenarios. And you talked about like a big wave scenario when you wipe out and you're underwater for a minute or something. And, and I, you talked about this, I think it was the ocean warrior course, um, where you train for those kinds of situations. You put yourself in that like life or death scenario, um, to make sure that when those real things happened, you were ready for it. Could you just kind of talk about what that was like and why that kind of thing is, is helpful for people? Yeah. Um, so, so for me, surfing really big waves, it's, it is really, truly a life and death type of situation that there, I've had a lot of friends that died surfing big waves doing what I do. And, um, they honestly, they almost always die drowning. So being underwater for too long, you die. Um, and so I've done a lot of underwater breath training to, to like build up my lungs, but more importantly, just to get mentally tougher. Um, so you put yourself in extremely uncomfortable situations so that when an uncom- really uncomfortable situation presents itself and it's really, it's real life, it's not shocking. So, you know, if you want to become a Navy SEAL, you don't wait until you're in Afghanistan to be uncomfortable. You know what I mean? You, you, you do a ton of training that is all horribly, horribly uncomfortable and just suffer fast. Yeah. And then when you get to Afghanistan and you're suffering and your feet are full of blisters and you're cold and you're wet and people are shooting at you and you, you feel like the, the world's crashing down. That's not your first time because you've been through the training. You've suffered through horrible stuff with, you know, and, and so it's, it's very similar with surfing. You, know, you, you, you try and recreate all those things to anticipate it happening in real life. So I, under controlled situation, I'll go into a pool with, with a friend who's watching me and I'll basically hold my breath 
as long as I possibly can and do all these crazy exercises and then try and hold your breath for a long time and do all these circuit training underwater. It's like doing like a gym workout, but you're doing it underwater in a pool. And sometimes you even go all the way to where you black out. And that's why you, ha- you have to do it with somebody, a partner that's going to be sitting there and, and waiting for that to happen. And then when it does happen, they can bring you up safely. Wow. And so when I'm, so when I'm surfing really big waves and I go under and I'm underwater for a very, very long time, instead of like hoping I'm not dying, I'm going back to my process of, okay, I've done this before. I've been underwater for, you know, five and a half minutes before I've been underwater for a minute and 45 seconds with a super high heart rate. And I know what this is like. It sucks. It's, it feels like you're going to die, but you have plenty of time. And to have all that information in your head and be thinking about all that stuff, it stops you from panicking. And that's, that's what keeps you living. That's, that's, that's how you survive. So, wow. Have you had, have you had an instance? Yeah. Have you had an instance now since you've done a lot of this training where you found yourself in that scenario and you were actually able to kind of step outside of yourself mentally and have that like self-talk happen? Or is it, is it just instinct and you, you do all these things, but you're not actually talking yourself through it underwater? Yeah, no, um, I've had those situations and I definitely talked to, talk, definitely talking to myself to, to just like remember all the training and remember all the steps and remember all the, the times where I felt like that. Um, but if you do it enough, you don't really need to think about it that much. Yeah. You know, it's just like you become comfortable with being uncomfortable is what it's all about. Yeah. Do you see it, it now? Of course, not that kind of specific situation, but are there, are there any parallels as far as what people could do to train for the worst case scenario in hunting. Like I'm imagining right away, I'm jumping to like archery is a great thing to point to. Cause you could, there's ways you could kind of train for the worst case scenario from an archery standpoint, but I don't know. Is there any other ways you see that translating to what you do as a hunter or what other people might? Yeah, dude. It's like, it's, you know, if you, like, it's, it's, it's just come down to like, what's important. Like, you know, I have friends that from Hawaii that, you know, they're like, I'm going to go hunting this year for elk. And then they go hunting for elk and, you know, like I'll talk to them and, and I'll be like, why are you calling me on the phone? Are you supposed to be elk hunting? And they're like, yeah, it was snowing. <laughs> yeah, it was raining. Yeah, it was super cold today. Or uh-huh. yeah, the elk weren't around. So I came out. I came and got a hotel and I'm going to chill for a few days until the snow passes or until the storm passes or until it gets warmer. It's like, dude. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> if, if, if you if you wait into your elk hunting to be uncomfortable, if you if you wait to your elk hunting to be cold, if you wait till your elk hunting to have your feet sore, if you wait, if you wait till your elk hunting to have your legs cramping up and sore, then you're gonna fail, dude. You know, it's like so simple, but we're just lazy. We're so comfortable now, and yeah. this like modern society is so comfortable. We become soft and. God, just like like a um, country of pussies, really. Yeah, <laughs> I, I hate saying that, but it's true, and I'm totally guilty too. Like, our lives are so comfortable these days; they really easy. are. And and so, if you have a, a, a elk hunt coming up, shoot, act like it, live like it. You know, like put the pack on on the weekend. Like, you know, cut out an hour out of your schedule and go. You know what, honey? On Saturday morning, I'm going to be gone for an hour. Find the steepest mountain around where you live, but a 50 pound pack on and walk up and down it a bunch of times and break those boots in, get the blisters, figure out what socks work, what, what socks don't be. And if, if it's Saturday morning and eight o'clock when you told your wife, you're going to go and do that. And it's pouring rain. Guess what? Don't, don't go to breakfast instead. Don't sit in bed and chill until the rain goes away. But on the rain gear, go do it just like you would elk hunting. Like 
And it's the same thing when you're elk hunting. If you're in your tent and it's cold and rainy, put your rain gear on and go hunt. The animals still out there. You know what I mean? Like no excuses. I, I feel like if, if you if you're always looking for an excuse, there's always going to be one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. And I feel like if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to to go through that suffer fest, whether it be the 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 training suffer fest or when it's the actual real deal suffer fest out there, and you go through the shit and you get out the other side, like that. Yeah, maybe it doesn't sound like fun in the moment, but those are, at least for me, those are the experiences that like that stick with you the most. Like when you have to suffer and go through this really tough stuff, like that's kind of that's when you feel most alive, I think. And when you look back on it, I feel 100%. like it, that was that was worth doing, you know. Now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go. But here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. For for a number of years, I, I didn't know anything about elk hunting. You know, I, I was pretty new to hunting. This is in like 2006. I started going elk hunting with my buddy from here in Hawaii who had gone elk hunting a few times, but we didn't know how to call elk. We didn't know how to hunt elk. We just did a little bit of research online, like as much as we could, but I had no idea how to research anything. So I was just going off his information of where to go. And we, we like rented a car and like drove to the trailhead and then walked as far as we possibly could, um, found the, found the water, uh, the, the, the highest, the highest Creek, on the map that we could. And then, um, you, you know, it is, it, and we, we hunted out for like three years like that, like hardcore backcountry, do it yourself over the counter tag, you know, trying to beat other hunters, tons of people around and trying to walk further, you know, wake up earlier and just put in a hardcore miles. And then, so I did that for three years. And then on my third year, I ended up killing a bull 
And then that was a massive, that was a huge accomplishment for me. And next year, I was so excited to go back. And, and we were supposed to go back. We planned a trip, bought my ticket, organized everything. And about three or four days before I left, my friend called me. He's like, I can't go. I'm too busy. Something came up. I can't go. And so I was thinking, like, what do I do? Like, I'm by myself. Like, in call, I, like, what, you know, what, should I just call, call the trip off? It would have been so easy to call the trip off. And yeah. instead, I, or, I ordered a satellite phone. for. I, I rented a satellite phone for the week. And I said, screw it, I'm going. And so I did that hunt all by myself and, and hiked eight miles back and 2,500 feet up from where I parked and hunted for, you know, eight days by myself. And I didn't kill a bull, but I went through multiple gnarly snowstorms, um, bear tracks next to, my, next to my tent, lightning storms where I had to move my tent in the middle of the night, almost getting trampled by elk in the middle of the night. <laughs> like so many crazy things. That would have been so easy to pull stakes and just get out of there and like go back down to the Holiday Inn, and but I just made myself like suffer through it. And um, man, those are the times I don't remember. Like I don't remember all the times when I was like looking for some giant bull all the time, but I remember all those moments of where I felt like I was about to die or felt super like you know the crazy roller coaster of emotions that come with you know thinking there's a bear outside at night you're by yourself or crazy snowstorm or bear tracks or um, you know, all that sort of, all those sort of things that, that you go through are like, they're just, that's, that's when you feel like you're living at a hundred percent, you know, yeah. like if, if, if you always go back to the holiday and when it starts snowing, then you're only living your life at 50% and that's a shitty way. You know? uh, yeah. It's just not the way to do it. I a hundred percent agree. So, so what is going through your mind when you're in that scenario, you're out there by yourself and all this shit's happening, the, the blizzard, the bears, um, like how do, what's your like self talk in that kind of, in those kinds of moments? Like, do you have, are you like talking yourself through things? Are you, a, are you just thinking about, Hey, you've got this goal. You really want to work towards it. Or like, what is it? How do you deal with that stuff for you? Um, well, I've learned a lot from, from different people that I've hunted with. I, I hunted with, um, Adam Greentree quite a bit in Australia and he loves to suffer. He's like a suffer guy. He loves being <laughs> uncomfortable and but he's got little tricks like when he's super cold and he's by himself and he's lonely and it's snowing and it's, he's in his tent stuck there and it's nighttime and he's hearing bears and stuff. He'll start a fire. He'll, he'll, he'll light a candle. He'll, you know, like the, something about fire is super soothing and like to humans, like if it's just dark and you're by yourself and you have your headlamp on, it like creates anxiety. It creates stress, creates fear. But if you have a little fire going, even if it's a tiny little fire, it really helps that warmth, that, you know, and that's the, the something about the flame. Yeah. Just as humans, it's like mellows us out. It, it lowers our stress, makes us way more, you know, chilled out and like makes us, you know, less depressed, more just, just in general, like that makes you feel better. There's a lot of like little things like that, getting plenty of rest, like taking little breaks, meditating. There's a lot of things you can do to like get through those periods where um, sometimes it seems unbearable, you know. Yeah, I I feel uh, those things can definitely be really tough, and it definitely comes back down to the mental side of things. And you mentioned something which I don't know much about, and for a long time I always thought it was kind of like woo-woo, but the more and more I, I kind of study people that are doing great things with their lives, you keep hearing about it over and over and over again, and I'm starting to like wonder, is there something to this? Um, and you said meditating. Is that something that in any way you like is, is actually part of your life in some way? And is that helpful it is um and it may not be like 
another person's. I think there's a lot of different meditating. You know, there's a lot of different sorts of meditating. There's the kind where you're sitting, um, you know, with a with cross legs position, with your hands in that perfect position, and you're going om om. There's yeah. like that type of meditating, and everyone has a different type of meditation. For some some people, it's like during yoga poses. For some people, it's during breathing exercises. But yeah, I do. I have. I have. I, I usually do a sort of meditation when I'm when I'm stretching and doing my my exercises. I do these really slow exercises, like for my back. My back gets really tweaked sometimes, and so I have like a um, like a little routine that I do, and I meditate during that. And then, but yeah, I mean, I think meditation can be really good, and everyone has your own way of doing that. But it's a just a way to relax and focus, and I think that's good, especially if you're on like a backcountry hunt by yourself or you're really uncomfortable or something like that. I just was thinking about this story, like I was in Colorado with my buddy and it was, um, it was September and it was hot. And one day we woke up really early in the morning, like four in the morning in the pitch black and walked up over this huge ridge and it took us forever to get there. And it started snowing like crazy and it started raining like crazy and then it started snowing again. And I was soaked to the bone. My, I was so cold. It went for, I was planning it, it being like 60 to 70 degrees and it was like, 30 degrees oh. and it was freezing cold and um, I was soaked to the bone. My socks were soaked. I had shitty um, rain gear on. It all got wet. I was miserable. All I wanted to do was walk back to the truck and start the heater on, even though it was like three hours away. And, um, and I remember my friend was just like, no, we're going to stop and we're going to make a fire. And we gathered firewood and made a huge giant inferno. And we had the best time ever. We had like a two hour dry out. We took off all of our, basically all of our clothes and like dried it out in the tree and it all got dry and warm. And we were, there was just something about that fire. And we, even though it was just like two hours a day, we were completely dry and the weather broke and got nice. And then we, we hunted all day long, super hardcore. Instead of walking back to the truck all wet, it just completely changed our perspective and our outlook. And we just had an epic day of hunting. And so there's like little things like that you can do to just change change the situation that you're in and and just makes all the difference. It's like a little mental reset, right? I feel like that's yeah. that's one of the things I hear people talk about. Like you said, like back on that meditation thing, like some people assume that meditating is like that home deal, but I keep on hearing from people that yeah. are talking about it more so just being like just finding a way to like kind of take control of your like just what's going on in your mind and just like focus on something and just kind of resets you just a little bit. Um, I, I could imagine that being helpful. For sure, it is. No matter. I I think for me, it's like a it's like a make, making sure that that you're living according to your priorities and your goals. You know, instead of just doing what's comfortable all the time. I, I keep coming back to that, but that's I think that's the thing that's like the main thing for me is like really like remembering my priorities and my goals and what I really want to do. And then like living my life accordingly, you know, every day in yeah. that way. Do you have a way to like keep track of that or make sure you're like, you're staying on point. I, I know like some people, I've heard some people talk about like every night before they go to bed, they try to think about like three things they're grateful for, or like the, the two things that really matter or something like that ways to like keep reminding yourself, making sure you're, you're thinking about these things. Is there anything like that that you do? Um, to keep those priorities straight? Yeah, it's it's mostly just focusing on my goals or, or you know, like uh, focusing on things that I want to achieve or focusing on little things that are coming up, like say, 
say I'm going hunting, you know, six weeks from now for access deer on Maui. But like, I'll have that on my calendar every night before I go to sleep or during the day, I'll think about that and be like, hey, those deer are going to be there. I know they are. It's going to be some big buck. And so I need to go shoot my bow. I'm going to do that tomorrow at 12 o'clock right before I go pick up my kids from school. You know, I, so I, I, I try to, I try to stay, stay motivated to do the things I need to do in my life that I want to do so I can achieve those goals that are coming up in the future. Yeah. In, 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 does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I feel like I kind of do something similar and, and, you know, when there's tough things that maybe I don't want to do right away, I can always think to those goals and remind myself, well, it doesn't feel great to jump out of bed right now because you're really tired, but you have that hunt coming up. So those are good ways to always just keep you yeah. motivated and keep you focused, keep your eyes on the prize. Sure. Um, now, what about the flip side of all this, though? Because obviously you're you're very goal oriented, very achievement oriented. You're 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 focused on the priorities. You're doing good work. You're pushing to be the best you can be. Um, there's this flip side of though this, which is where things go too far maybe you know like i know i remember hearing about you talking in the early years of your professional career when the competitive surfing you know doing the tour and stuff you kind of burn out on it something just lost the the fun or or something was wrong there and you you burnt out on it you went so hard that it lost you lost the love for the game maybe um I feel like that can happen in the hunting world too, where you, you go so hard, you love it so much, you push, 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 push. You're hunting 25 days straight, all day, every day, if you have the time. Um, and then all of a sudden you realize like it's it's consumed your life, it's taken over your life maybe in a, in a negative way. Um, how do you, how did you deal with that in that situation when you kind of shifted your professional focus? What was that like for you? And then like, how do you think about burnout and letting your drive go too far and, and balancing all that? You know, it's, it's, um, the, the serving thing is really different in, in, you know, in like in regards to what you're talking about, because, um, you know, it, I feel like if you're in sports, whether you're, whether you're like a professional golfer or professional basketball player or a professional surfer, like it's such a high pressure situation. There's so many people that want your job and, you, you, it's just like the, the, the least amount of job security you could ever have as being a professional athlete. And so it's just looking for that edge all the time and putting in more work. It, it's kind of, you sort of have to be completely selfish and almost sacrifice almost every other aspect of your life in order to become successful in athletics or any kind of sports or, you know, being, being a professional athlete. Like everything else falls by the wayside in order for you to succeed at what you want to do in, in being, being a pro athlete. And so for a long, long time, basically everything else in my life completely suffered. I lived a very selfish lifestyle because I sort of had to, in order to succeed. Um, and now it's definitely not nearly as much. I'm still goal oriented. I'm still pretty disciplined. I still have a lot of things I want to achieve and everything, but it's not so, um, grindy. It's not so, hardcore and I, and I, and there's, and and now it's, I have much more of a healthy balance, um, in my life. I really like the most important thing in my life now is my family. And I know that. So I'll be gone on a surf trip, which for me is a work trip at, you know, for three weeks and I'll come home and I really want to go bow hunting. I want to jump on a plane and go hunt deer on Maui. But my, my number one uh, priority in my life is my family. So I don't, I don't do that. I come home and try and spend a bunch of time with my family and then I'll work up some time. And when I do get a moment, I'll try and go bow hunting. But, but 
first, I gotta, I gotta make sure I'm there for my family because they, they are number one. And so I'm able to, you know, they are my ultimate priority right now. And I'm, I'm very lucky to be in a situation in my life now where I can kind of put them first and I can still, um, keep my job and I can still do my job really well. And, um, but yeah, it's a much, much healthier balance. And then with bow hunting also, like bow hunting is, is a really, really important part of my life. It keeps me sane and it's something that I'm super passionate about and I love doing, but I don't do it too much. I, I, I probably, I don't, I don't know how much I hunt. My wife would probably think I hunt a lot, but I don't <laughs> think I hunt that much at all. But, but, um, but I do absolutely love it, but I think I love it as much as I do because I don't get to do it as much as I'd like. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I have an issue. But I do hunt a lot. I probably hunt, I probably hunt, I don't know, maybe like 40 days a year. Yeah, it's quite a bit for most people. I have an issue where I I get so focused on some kind of task. Usually it's, it's work-related, so hunting-related or or the work side of what I do. Um, so I, I'm very like task oriented, very, very goal oriented. I get like all in and I get like, tunnel vision. I get so focused on it because I so badly want to achieve whatever goal that is that sometimes I just completely lose sight of these other parts of my life, like sometimes family stuff. Um, and so I'm trying to get better at like being able to become aware when I'm doing that, like having some kind of self-awareness where I can like say, well, you're going too far. You need to, take a step back and remember everything else is going on. Um, maybe, maybe given some of the stuff you said, maybe that's something you've dealt with at times. Do you have a way that you're able to kind of pull yourself out of that when you realize you're going too hard with work or something and you can, I don't know, do you have any ways that have helped you to just kind of have that self-awareness? Yeah. I mean, every, you know, I, I just, I just try to keep a balance really, but like every now and then, you know, things come up with work where I have to do um, trips back to back to back to back. Um, and I, there's some certain things that I can't say no to and, and I sort of have to go and, and sometimes they build up at the wrong time. So it's really difficult and kind of hard on my family. I've gone a lot, like, you know, in a three month period, I might be gone for like, you know, six or seven weeks out of three months. And, and so it's, it's a, it, 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 it can be really hard on my family, but for me, I just go, okay, like as soon as I get back, I'm going to spend tons and tons of time. So I'm going to block out time right when I get home to really spend time with my family and do some, some really special things. Like I'm spending a ton of time with my son because my son is really into surfing now. So we actually spend a lot of time together because we go on surf trips together now. Um, but then I really try to remember to, to, um, make my daughter a, a priority. And so when I get home, I try and spend a ton of time with my daughter and, and sort of make sure it's even if it's not equal, I, I, she knows that it's not all about my son. And I, that's a real, real priority for me to, to make sure that she knows that I'm there for her as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I I have, uh, I'm just starting to figure all that out. I have a year and a half old son and, um, it's it's heck of a learning experience. So I can totally relate to what you're saying. And I can imagine it's just going to become a bigger and bigger thing that I have to be thinking about how to make sure to balance all that. Um, I think that's probably a good place to start because a lot of people deal with the same it's the same thing. And that's, you know, how do you balance your passion for the outdoors or hunting or your job or whatever? How do you balance that with your, with your family and stuff? So maybe to wrap it up, do you have one, you know, final thing that you've learned about whether it be this issue of balance or maybe even, I know I've, I've seen you taking your son out hunting with you and stuff, anything you've learned as far as introducing a child to the outdoors and these kinds of things, um, maybe, maybe leave us with an idea like that. 
I'm sorry, what was the question again? Just curious if you had any anything you've kind of learned about introducing your son to the outdoors and hunting and, and what that's been like. Oh, yeah, I think it's. I think the I think the biggest lesson for me with with introducing my my kids to archery and bow hunting is 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 just like reinstilling what it's really all about. It, you know, like how, how you mentioned at the start about you know like newer hunters that that you know like look at Instagram and see all those massive bucks and the massive bulls and they end up like holding out for some big trophy. Um, but they're really missing out on tons of experiences. And, um, I feel like when you have kids, you know, and you know, if you, like for me, I introduced my son to bow hunting and, and it's when you're hunting with your son, you know, we're hunting hogs or goats or sheep or whatever it is. And it's like, it's not about the antlers. It's not about what the biggest one is. It's about those experiences with your kids, which, you know, and, and the, those experiences with your family or the, those experiences with your friends. And it's all about going on those adventures and the experiences of, of life. You know, like it, the, the antlers don't matter. They're, they're great. They're fun and everything. It's really fun, but they really, it's really, it's really like for, for me, it's like a low priority situation. And, and um, I think introducing my son to bow hunting really sort of instilled why I love hunting. Because I, I was starting to hunt with people that are real high-level hunters and, and even, like, people who get paid to go hunting, and that's kind of their job. And so they have to kill big stuff all the time. Every single hunt they go on has to be a big trophy hunt. And I, I don't really want to do that. I want to sort of get away from having that perspective. I just want to have hunts that that are really satisfying and challenging and and at the end of the year like look back on the hunts i did that year and just go wow i really did some incredible hunts with incredible people and things i'm gonna remember forever yeah that's awesome and i think you're right kids are a really great way of of kind of like recentering you with those types of things just kind of opening your eyes to the the fun of stuff again because everything's so exciting and new to them and I, I i've i've already even found that with my son just it's it's cool to relive and and to just find the joy in the little things again and i think they help us do that so it's pretty cool yeah well shane this is yeah it's awesome i I actually um uh, sorry just one one last thing i yeah i think it's really cool that i i want to share the readers is um a a friend of mine who's a bow hunter he i i got this idea from him but basically every year at the end of the year i go through all my hunts and all the photographs that i took on all my hunts I put them all together in one of those like really cool uh, coffee table picture books, oh, nice. um, like from Apple or Shutterfly or whatever, and um, they're really cool. And so I have one for like the last like like ten years of my hunting life. Like each year, I have a photo book, and it's a really really neat way to like remember all the memories, whether you're hunting with your son or your father or your really good buddies or by yourself, just like documenting those hunts and putting all those hunts in a picture book for a year. Um, it's a really, really neat way to, to, you know, stay motivated to go hunting and stay motivated to shoot your bow, just have them in your office sitting there and just pick it up from time to time. Or if your buddies come over to have a couple of beers, they can have a look at what, what the hunts, if they're on with you or, or if you want hunts without them, they can see what it's all about instead of just hearing the stories. And, um, I think that's a really, really neat way to remember that, you know, what's really important about hunting and, and just the adventure and the stories and, and all the, all the really neat uh, places that we get to go to and people we get to hunt with. Yeah, so true. That's a great idea. And, and it really is funny these days with, you know, we take so many pictures because we've got these cameras in our phones now. So I've got probably more pictures yeah. than ever, but I never look at them because it's, you know, it's it's not right. 
I don't know, but for whatever reason, I feel like you don't go scrolling through your phone and looking kind of for fun at all these pictures like no. you might look at a book on your table, you know? For sure. That's, yeah. uh, that's a good have. idea. Well, Shane, this has been awesome. I really enjoyed the chat. Um, really interesting perspective. So thanks for taking the time to do this. No worries. I've, I appreciate uh, being on the, uh, on, on the podcast. Yeah, and if anyone wants to wants to learn more about what you got going on, or you know, is there anywhere they should be following you on social media or anything? I know you do, you've done a lot of films and things like that. I know there's a great documentary out there. Um, anything like that you'd suggest people check out? Um, yeah, uh, on HBO right now. Uh, uh, sorry, on HBO right now we have um, the Momentum Generation documentary. That's a, a documentary about um, my friends and I growing up in surfing and competing and all the the crazy things that happened during our lives. And it's a really good documentary. It actually just won the, the, um, an Emmy for, uh, the best sports documentary wow. of the year. And, um, so it was a great film. I'm really, I, I didn't have anything with producing it, but, um, it's a really cool film. If anybody wants to watch it, that's out there. You can follow me. I'm, I'm not really, really active on a lot of social media. I do Instagram, um, Shane Dorian. It's, uh, you can just search me and it'll, it'll come up, but, yeah, follow me, and uh, that's it, really. Awesome. Well, we appreciate it, Shane, and uh, good luck this coming out in season. Cool. Thanks so much. You too. All right, and that is a wrap. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. Uh, in addition to that documentary we just mentioned, if you want to see more from Shane, Yeti has a really cool short film out on YouTube that features him, and, and you get to see a little bit of his uh, hunting background and how he's sharing that with his son, which is really cool. Um, there's actually some other great videos on YouTube, too, showing him surfing some of these just massive waves give you a little bit of insight into what he's doing and how intense that is so uh, check all that stuff out and uh, i hope you are able to take some of these ideas especially stuff around discipline or putting yourself in uncomfortable situations that really stood out to me as things i could take right into my own life to become a better hunter and uh, i love those kinds of opportunities to learn so hope you took as much from this as i did and until next time Good luck out in the woods, good luck with your scouting, good luck hanging stands or planning food plots or training, whatever it might be. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.